everyone, and welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our Asian Pacific American communities. I'm your host, Rasha Goel. I'm so delighted today. Joining us on Asian Pacific Voices Radio is an incredible woman, a renowned chef, writer, and television host. She made history as the first blind contestant to win MasterChef's third season in 2012. And despite her visual impairment, she has triumphed as a talented chef, becoming an inspiration for many. Today, we delve into her extraordinary journey, her culinary achievements, her impactful work in the world of cooking and television. It is my pleasure to welcome Christine Ha to Asian Pacific Voices Radio. Christine, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Rasha. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is such a pleasure. You know, I'm going to right off the back say I think I'm even more excited because we're both from Houston. Um, so, so that just always holds a special place, <laughs> a special place for me. But let's talk about your early years. You know, you moved from your family moved from Saigon to Los Angeles after the Vietnam War, later to Houston, Texas. So if you could share maybe some things about your upbringing and some insights that helped form your life during those years. Well, I was born in LA, so uh, I, you know, don't necessarily consider myself a California girl because I grew up in Texas. So my parents did come over as refugees, and then I was born a little bit later. And then growing up in Houston, Texas, there wasn't a ton of Vietnamese food back in the '80s, but there was barbecue. There was a lot of beef in Texas. There was Gulf Coast seafood, and the shrimp from the Gulf Coast is uh, really spectacular. So growing up, I kind of straddled two different cultures as well as two different generations being the daughter of my immigrant parents. So mm -hmm. it was a struggle, I would say, growing up uh, back then, never feeling like I fit in either at home or at school. Like at home, I never felt Vietnamese enough. I was only allowed to speak Vietnamese, but I wanted pizza and Southern fried chicken all the time for <laughs> dinner instead of my mom's noodle soups or rice plates. And then at school, I never felt quote unquote American enough, meaning I would always have like the uh, egg rolls or the pork belly or fish sauce for lunch. And I was always trying to trade my lunch for <laughs> peanut butter jelly sandwiches on my classmates. So, um, you know, and I felt like I looked different from most of my classmates. So that was kind of a struggle. But um, now I think just diversity is so, so much of a welcomed thing and being older now and being much more comfortable in my own skin and who I am, um, I think has really served uh, myself and I think our Asian American population well in the United States with just the melting pot that America is. But that was kind of the influence of what it was like to grow up as uh, someone who is uh, the a Viet a Vietnamese heritage in Texas. That's so interesting. And I love how you shared going to school because I can tell you growing up too, you know, I would take Indian food to school. So I can definitely relate to that part of not mm -hmm. being fully Indian, but not being fully American and really trying to um, mix that up. And what's mm -hmm. so interesting to me now is I came back two years ago and the Vietnamese community has flourished there, mm -hmm. right? You have yes. so many restaurants and just like the own community of shops and people. And I find that very fascinating. Um, yeah. I've got so much to talk to you about, but as I am looking at our screen right now, you've got this interesting walk behind you. It looks like it has been used a lot of times. Is there any interesting story about that walk? 
no, I mean, we love cooking with the wok. I'm actually sitting in my home kitchen in Houston. So um, I have my stove range in the background. We've got like a, a carbon pan back there and also a carbon wok. And I mean, we use it to do all sorts of things, whether it's deep frying, shallow frying, stir frying, wok frying, making fried rice in it, uh, doing all sorts of things. So uh, I people always ask, like, do I still find time to cook at home being a chef and, and restaurant owner? And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, I do still have time to cook at home, but only because I've managed to have all of my restaurants be staffed with a really competent management team that I can fully depend upon to run my restaurant so that I don't need to be in the kitchen all the time over there. So that allows me to free up a little bit of my time and then not feel burnt out with cooking. So I do cook quite a bit at home still. Oh, wow. I feel like that's like the magic walk behind you. Um, <laughs> you the restaurants, how, now how many restaurants do you have at this time? Uh, I have two. So I have the Blind Goat, which is my first one that I opened, which I consider a modern Vietnamese eatery. Um, that one is kind of taking a lot of street foods from Vietnam and doing my own personal twist on them as uh, a Vietnamese American who grew up in Texas. So that means kind of utilizing uh, more modern techniques or local ingredients or just kind of doing mashups of like Tex-Mex and Vietnamese or Texas barbecue and Vietnamese. And then Ooh. I have Stuffed Belly, which is a completely different concept, meaning it's a drive-through, very limited seating on the inside. And the menu actually consists of like fairly classic American sandwiches with my own fun little twists on some of them as well. And that's kind of a nod to having done a lot of Vietnamese cuisines, like with my uh, former restaurant, Sin Chow, and then The Blind Goat, both being contemporary Vietnamese uh, cuisine type restaurants. I wanted to give a nod to my very much American side and American upbringing. So growing up, I loved eating burgers and fried chicken sandwiches and tuna salad sandwiches. So uh, that is kind of my way of um, paying homage to the my traditional American childhood here and growing up and loving sandwiches on road trips and on picnics and just enjoying with my friends as well. So that's I just wanted to exercise a different creative muscle in my culinary brain. I love that. And what would you say is your absolute one favorite dish at either of the places or even at Ooh. home? Um, let's see at the restaurant. So I'm going to have to, you know, cause I have the two babies. I'm going to have to name one for, for each place. So at Stuffed Belly, my favorite is the triple cheese, please, which is actually a three cheese grilled sandwich, <laughs> but I actually do a tomato confit on it. So it's almost like, um, a putting together tomatoes, the very classic American flavors of a tomato soup with a grilled cheese sandwich, but into one. So um, that's my favorite thing at uh, Stuffed Belly. And then at the Blind Goat, we have a dish that's called Bang Khot in Vietnamese. And it's like a turmeric and coconut milk little uh, fried pancake or fritter, if you will. We actually Ooh. imported the pan to make it from Vietnam because we couldn't find the correct pan to make it here. Like so many restaurants who do uh, make this dish use like a Japanese takoyaki pan, but the shape of each divot is just not the same to make bank hot. So we imported the pan. Uh, so we make these little uh, fritters or like little uh, crispy pancakes and we top them with traditional topping of shrimp and then it gets wrapped in lettuce and gets dipped in fish sauce. So 
that one is one of my favorite dishes uh, on the blind goat menu because you can't get them in a lot of places here in Houston. Wow, how fun, how fun. Um, I do want to, I, I find your background very inspiring. And I do want to talk a little bit about the neuromyelitis optica when you were diagnosed in your 20s with it. I understand you completely lost your eyesight within three years. I can't even imagine what a challenging and difficult time that might have been for you. But for our audience who may not be familiar with it, could you tell us a little bit more about this condition and how you've been able to navigate the daily challenges in your life? Yes. So neural myelitis optica, or NMO for short, uh, is similar to multiple sclerosis, where it is considered an autoimmune disease that primarily affects the nervous system. So that means the optic nerves, which apparently that's affected my optic nerves greatly, and that's how I lost my vision. Uh, it can affect the brain and also the spinal cord. Um, it's different from MS in that it's, it tends to be a more progressive disease oftentimes. Um, it tends to happen to both sides of the body, like uh, not affecting just one side of the brain or one optic nerve versus the other, but it tends to affect both sides. It used to be considered a rare orphan disease, but now, even though it's still considered a rare disease, I think more people like myself were initially misdiagnosed with MS and then correctly diagnosed with NMO. So um, the more, more research and knowledge about NMO have been coming out, so more people are getting correctly diagnosed with NMO. Um, I can remember that uh, in my 20s, when I first experienced the symptoms of NMO, first it happened as inflammation of my optic nerve in one of my eyes. I just remember not really understanding why this was happening or what was the cause of it. Um, I initially just thought it was my contact lens and that it was dirty. But, you know, after visiting many doctors, they realized that it was an optic nerve inflammation and um, that led to the first, the incorrect diagnosis of MS. And I was put on MS therapy for years and it didn't really help because I continued to get flare ups and, you know, that my worst um, attack was actually when I became paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and that recovery process actually took nine months of physical therapy, a lot of drug therapy, occupational therapy before I could fully walk again and feel, have feeling come back into my hands and my feet and, and be able to uh, be independent again. But my optic nerves never fully recovered. So my vision just gradually uh, deteriorated in my 20s. Um, but it was definitely a tough time. I wouldn't say that I'm always, I was always positive. Uh, I never felt angry about what happened, but I was always questioning and wondering why it was happening and what was the purpose of all of it happening to me. Um, and eventually, as I recovered, I just knew I had to find a way to keep on living my life, even though it had changed greatly. Um, and that it, uh, you know, this is my new baseline, my new normal. I had to figure out a new way to live with the vision loss and the autoimmune disease uh, and still try to find a purpose for myself and, and a way to contribute to this world. Christine, you're absolutely incredible. I, I'm, I'm really taken by your story and just your tenacity. Um, I, I can imagine the challenges, but I, when I look at everything you've also accomplished, um, it truly just makes me wonder how you push through, you know, and, and stayed positive to say, well, listen, I, I'm not going to let this impairment stop me from what I want to create. 
And um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now, along that note, I do want to share some of the amazing accolades you have. Third season of MasterChef in 2012. You competed in 19 episodes, winning seven times in individual and team challenges, defeated over 30,000 home cooks across America, and secured the coveted MasterChef title, a $250,000 cash prize, and a cookbook deal. And here's the thing that gets me, Christine. It's all without formal formal culinary <laughs> training. And we know how competitive some of those people are in their backgrounds. So let's talk about what drove your passion for cooking, since this wasn't something that you were doing you know, from your childhood and super excited about. And why right. did you decide to go participate in MasterChef? Well, I started cooking actually when I was a sophomore in college, and that was... Initially, it was kind of a, a means to like, I had to do it because I'm in my freshman year, I lived in the dorms. And then after I moved out of the dorms <clears throat> into an apartment, I no longer had the cafeteria to eat at and rely upon to, for food throughout <laughs> the day. So I had this little kitchen in my apartment. I had two roommates and I figured, well, I guess I got to teach myself or learn how to cook because no one else is going to feed me and I couldn't <laughs> afford to always eat out. So uh, I ended up initially just buying cookbooks and, and some pots and pans and knives and read these recipes and just started trying to follow them word for word in the kitchen. And after many botched uh, dishes that I cooked, I finally made something that I thought tasted good and something kind of sparked in me. And I, I found a lot of happiness in being able to create something from raw ingredients and then enjoying it at the end and thinking, hey, this is so cool that I was able to do something with these raw foods and then make a meal out of it, something that my mom used to do so easily. And then my roommates and my friends enjoyed my food. And then that kind of was even more paramount in the, in the idea of being able to serve other people and make other people happy with something I created. That was what started just the ball rolling on me really enjoying cooking. And so I wanted to learn everything I could about cooking and kept buying cookbooks, experimenting in the kitchen, trying to learn different techniques, learn about different ingredients. Fast forward several years, like I was cooking a lot, uh, but I was also simultaneously during this time losing my vision. So I would have to always teach myself over and over how to do the same things with less and less vision. So that could be frustrating um, at times, but I kept at it because I've always grown up to be to, taught to be very independent. My, uh, my, I lost my mom when I was young, but even before I lost her, she had always said, like, you need to be independent, <clears throat> um, not depend on other people to take care of you. Um, so for me, I've always been kind of of that mindset where even though I was losing my vision or even if I couldn't walk, I had to figure out how to feed myself in case I lived alone for the rest of my life. So I kept at it. And then uh, fast forward some more years, uh, my friends and my family, I had lost my vision, but I was cooking for them pretty regularly. And they encouraged me to audition for MasterChef because they thought that America should learn about how someone with a vision impairment can still navigate the kitchen. Yes. And at the time I was in graduate school for creative writing, I didn't go on the show thinking I would get far, but I really went for the experience because I thought it would make for a interesting story or a personal essay to come home and write about in, in grad school. <laughs> That's so incredible. And look where that all landed and how it came into fruition. 
I, this is from my own personal curiosity. So with cooking, as far as when you have a vision impairment, what, what type of adjustments do you need to make to your kitchen? I'm, I'm curious to know that. Yeah, I, I would say the main adjustments are I have to make certain things that are not visible to uh, use tactile uh, markers. So for example, my stove knobs will have these little bump dot stickers that you can purchase online. And they're just like raised stickers that I can put on the stove knob for uh, to align the knob with like the medium heat flame level or whatever, or on my oven or a lot of appliances these days are touchscreen, which makes it actually difficult for visually impaired cooks. Yes. Um, but I'll have like one raised bump dot on the number five on my microwave, for example. So, um, and then one on the start button so I can feel that and then work the microwave. So that is probably the main adjustment. Um, I've always been a very organized person all of my life. So some of my friends joke that you are probably out of all of us the most prepared to lose your vision because I have everything super organized in my home, which is really important in any kitchen for even sighted cooks, but even more important for someone who's visually impaired. So I know exactly where all my knives are, which knife is which, where the spices are, what order they're in. Um, and then, of course, nowadays with the technology of smart home appliances or smartphones and, and tablets, it helps me uh, listen to the recipes I have in my archives or set timers or do uh, measurement conversions quite easily at just the sound of my voice. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes, I was, I was just very curious on um, how you're able to create your amazing concoctions. Now you also collaborated with the renowned chef, Gordon Ramsay. Any fun, memorable behind the scene moments that you could share with us or, or something that had a lasting impact on you? Yeah, people, people always ask me like how Gordon really is. And I always say he is pretty much exactly like what you see on television. I say that, you know, he doesn't really sugarcoat things for sure. He's very authentic and genuine with his feedback. Um, I think his personality is perfect for television. It's not like he creates this different, completely different persona because he's on TV, but I think it's that's who he really is and that's what makes him really good for television. Um, he is definitely expects you to be thick-skinned. He teased me all the time, but I know it was, you know, I didn't take it personally. Um, I think he really did it because he favored me and he really wanted to take me under his wing and um, mentor me and, and see me flourish as a home cook growing into uh, someone that was becoming an even better chef. Um, mm. So, I mean, Gordon was always just really fun. Like he would tease me all the time. I remember there's one challenge where it was a, uh, a team challenge and I was on a team of three and we were actually cooking in a professional restaurant kitchen. And then we were at the time doing a poor job of communicating and not doing well as a team. So uh, Gordon called us over to what they call as the pass, which is kind of the window where the food, once it's ready, it gets pushed out so, um, to, so that it can get run to the guests that ordered it. And Gordon was standing at the pass and he called us over and he was lecturing us and telling us how we were doing a poor job and this and that and you know all that, <laughs> all that Gordon-like uh, comments and stuff. And then after that, you know, my two teammates went back to the kitchen to work and I was still staying there because I didn't know like 
they had left and we were dismissed. And I was just standing there and I was like, Gordon, like, can I get back into the kitchen? And he was like, Christine, are you blind? Like, you're definitely still in the kitchen. So it's just things like, you know, funny teases like that, that I don't take personally. So I just thought it was a a light moment of humor for what was like a serious uh, and difficult challenge. (laughs) I'm sure though, uh, what an experience to work with him and definitely on the thick skin part. I'm not sure I would have lasted, Christine. I would have probably been (laughs) crying after day one. Um, I think something I definitely want to share too with my audiences here is that in 2014, you made history as a first chef and author to receive the prestigious Helen Keller Personal Achievement Award, which is a remarkable achievement for anyone to receive. How do you feel that recognition influenced your efforts in advocating for people with vision loss and your work in the culinary world? I want to tell you a story, Rasha, about when I was on the show. Um, there was, I remember the specific moment when myself and my co-contestants, uh, who have now become friends, we were climbing into the casting van to go to set from our hotel. And one of them said to me, you know, Christine, like, even if you don't win this whole thing, you're going to be much bigger than the show. And then I was Aww. like, what does that even mean? And like, I'm like, first of all, I'm not going to win. And then second <laughs> of all, I'm like, I don't know what you mean, because, you know, if, if, if you put yourself in our shoes, like we're just kind of like these home cooks that all of a sudden, like our lives are thrown in front of cameras and we're cooking. And, and like I had told you, I did, had no intention of going on and winning the show. I was really just there for the experience to perhaps learn more about cooking. So I didn't really, it, it didn't really register in my head what that meant. And then he said, the fact that you're visually impaired, you're going to be such an inspiration for so many people to even be on the show, even if you don't win, so that you can inspire people of all different abilities and disabilities, or even any other life challenge that they can achieve things that they want to achieve and do things that they love to do in spite of those challenges. And I couldn't fathom that. Uh, And so I think fast forward to receiving the Helen Keller Personal Achievement Award, it sort of solidified that moment that I think about all the time in, in that day that we were getting into the casting van and what uh, my friend said to me. And just knowing that even though winning MasterChef and of course the quarter million cash prize was awesome, I think honestly the biggest gift and responsibility I received from having won the show is this platform that I know have to be, I now have to be a public face and an advocate for people with disabilities, Asian women, uh, women in the restaurant industry, people with vision impairment, patients with NMO. I think me being the voice for these populations that may not have the same platform I do is probably the most rewarding and highly responsible thing I have for me. So for me, being in this position, it's great to own these restaurants. And of course, it's, you know, the the vocation I have to be a chef and to do a lot of public speaking about all of this. But it's really to continue to give hope to a lot of people in this world. And I always think if I can make a difference in one individual's life, then it's worth it. And I know by now, many people have told me that in some ways I've helped them, whether large or small in their decisions or, or in their lives. So for me, I think it's great to be able to be an advocate and a voice uh, for people with vision impairment and disabilities and, and all sorts of, you know, other once marginalized populations in the U.S. Christine, thank you so much for sharing that story. As I was listening to you, I mean, it really touched my heart and, and you're absolutely right. And I felt 
You're right, because the advocacy is on so many different levels, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's aside, mm -hmm. yes, the disability, but then when we think too, yes, as, a, as an Asian female, yes, for the marginalized community. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. there's so many different aspects. So yes, mm -hmm. thank you. I, I do feel you serve as, as a symbol for hope and inspiration and, and really to let people know they can do anything. And then from there, I have to mention too, though, that you went on to MasterChef Vietnam and were a judge, which is so extraordinary as well. How did, uh, talk to me about that transition and, and what that journey meant to you, especially being a Vietnamese woman, right? And representing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, honestly, that was kind of a humbling experience because I realized how poor my Vietnamese language skills were going on that show <laughs> and being a judge. So I'm fluent in Vietnamese conversationally, like I can have conversations with friends and family, but I did not realize that the Vietnamese language, like so many languages around the world, I think there's a certain dialect or form language you use in a formal situation. So I remember I was always being teased by the other judges like, oh, you're talking to the contestants like they're your little siblings instead of like <laughs> contestants. Um, so in some ways it was a humbling experience and made me realize that I was not as in tune with my Vietnamese heritage as I thought I was, which is good. <laughs> because it really made me think like I need to explore more of that side of my heritage and my ancestry. Uh, but in a good way, in a positive note, I was very happy to no longer be a contestant and feeling the pressures and the stress of and the challenges of having to cook through all of the, the competition. And instead, I was able to be on the other side, but also be very empathetic to the contestants because I know what it's like to compete. I've been there before and I was able to offer them hopefully some sound advice in their cooking and just the way they perceived the the competition and their cooking as well so uh it was an enjoyable experience and i i really liked being able to learn about the differences of what a master chef set like was in vietnam in production versus in america and seeing the cultural differences the regional um differences that was really fascinating to to learn how things are done over there is Di totally different from how things are done in America. <laughs> what a fun experience. What a fun experience. Yes. And not as if you don't already have enough on your plate. You also hosted Four Senses. Mm -hmm. Now, what's so fascinating about this, this is a cooking show for the visually impaired. It's very unique. So could you tell us a little bit more about this show? And how did you approach making cooking accessible through audio description for your audience? Right. So Four Senses was a show that is geared towards visual impaired cooks. I was a co-host with actually Carl Heinrich, who was the winner of uh, Top Chef Canada season two. Um, he's fully sighted and a professional chef. I came in to bring the perspective of a visually impaired, like once home cook turned Master Chef season three winner. And it was uh, in a Canadian show on the accessible media network up there. So we embedded our audio description into our program so that both sided cook, uh, viewers can watch the show and follow along, but as well as the non-sided uh, uh, people, the audience can listen to the show. And we were always told, like, think of it as radio. So instead of using like, oh, you know, put this ingredient into that. We have to be specific, like put the onion we just diced into the saucepan, you know, with the broth. 
So we just had to be more specific so that visually impaired audience could follow along. Um, and so this show ran for four seasons, and I believe you can still find the episodes online on on the Accessible Media Incorporated uh, website. And I do point a lot of people who will send me emails and stuff asking about like, how do you know, can you give me some tips for being a visually impaired uh, person trying to navigate the kitchen? And I always say, you know, listen to these episodes because I think they'll help and you get some pretty good recipes. I love that. I love that. I'm going to make sure I check those out as well. And um, I understand that your husband has been very instrumental in your journey and he has an interesting, you have an interesting proposal story because it, it, it involved your love for food. It involved him buying a, a tub of Jamocha uh, almond fudge ice cream. <laughs> yes. I can't believe you dug that up. So <laughs> I got to give a shout out to my really producer for that. <laughs> I was like, I guess my life really is public. Yeah, that was actually, that story was the day that I realized that I think at the time we were just friends and then he, I had had a bad day. We were just friends hanging out and he was like, hey, you know, I'm going to pick you up or I'm going to, let's go do something. So I said, okay. And he took me to Baskin Robbins and then he tried, um, He we walked in and he was like, asking the person behind the counter, like, how much to buy this whole tub of Jamocha <laughs> almond fudge? And then I was thinking in my head, like, okay, first of all, my home freezer cannot fit this whole thing, but it was the gesture that counted. And, you know, somehow he remembered that growing up Jamocha almond fudge from Baskin Robbins was my favorite flavor. Uh, so that, that was at the moment when I was like, I think this guy likes me more than just as just a friend. And then from that, it just kind of took off. And then we've been married for 13 years and, you know, Aww. he's a business partner in all of our, our uh, restaurant concepts as well. So we work side by side, we live together and surprisingly, we haven't wanted to uh, divorce yet. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And does he cook for you as well? Is is he into cooking? Yes. People always ask and they're always asking like, John, do you, you must eat really well, but I always say he's a really good cook himself. Uh, we cook together all the time, which is like how we enjoy the kitchen time together at home. He actually participates in a lot of the menu development for our restaurants as well. Uh, Stuffed Belly was actually kind of more his baby because he loves sandwiches. Um, so he's a really good cook and the way we balance each other well in the kitchen is I'm very methodical and detail oriented and I love to try traditional, um, how to cook something traditionally before I'll try to make, you know, take my own creative twist with it. But John is kind of like the, the zany, like mad scientist in the kitchen where he's always trying new things, new trends, new ways to cook things on like molecular gastronomy, um, doing all sorts of things like he's always on TikTok, Instagram, social media, YouTube, Reddit, like reading about new things. So we balance each other out in that way. And it kind of makes sense because he's actually younger than me and we're actually of kind of different generations. So I, I think more on like a more traditional Gen X way of cooking and he's kind of more <laughs> of a millennial person cooking. So it, we, we actually mesh well together in the kitchen. Oh, how fun. What a great combo to have. What a great combo. I've got just a few minutes left here. So I do want to ask you, I mean, we've talked about your journey, but as someone who has navigated the culinary world, especially with the vision impairment, what advice would you have for aspiring chefs that do face career challenges? Well, that's a tough one. And I always um, speak at a lot of universities and I always get questions from students that are 
where it's like, my parents want me to be an engineer, but my love is, you know, for cooking. Should I drop out and go to culinary school? <laughs> and I would always say like, you know, you should in some ways, as tried as it sounds, follow your dreams, but you have to be smart about it. So I think, you know, whether your career challenge is getting your foot in the door or not having the skill yet um, to be a professional chef or cook or um, not having the means to go to culinary school, I think that you there are definite way definite ways to to think about things outside of the box and get around that and find your way into the kitchen. Like if you don't have a, a lot of um, technique down, now we live in an age where there's so many things that you can learn on online, like on YouTube, on TikTok, whatever it may be. Practice at home. Uh, and then when you feel like you have a decent enough skill set, like if you can't get your foot in the door to, you know, go to, you don't want to pay to go to culinary school, which culinary school can be very expensive. You don't always need to go that route. You can go to a restaurant that you really admire and want to learn from or enjoy the food at, knock mm. on the door, ask to talk to who runs the kitchen and ask to, you know, try out a, a few, what they say, like stodging is like, you know, just coming in and, and learning things in the kitchen um and just seeing if it's for you so that you don't necessarily have to invest so much time and money going to culinary school but at least you can get your feet wet and see like is this restaurant life even for me um you can continue to cook at home um start doing like personal catering gigs or cook for your friends or like if you're into baking like bake cakes or cookies get really good at it and then sell them online and and you know pass around by word of mouth to your friends. And I feel like there's many avenues to be able to do what you love in the culinary field without taking the traditional steps of going to culinary school and then working for a very low wage for a long time and getting yelled at by um, mm. you know, chefs in the kitchen. But I think, think outside the box, uh, be proactive and uh, search for opportunities and just knock on those restaurant doors that you admire and see what you can do and see if you can get in. That is some great advice. Thank you. And I think because we live in a world that has changed so much right now, there isn't just that one path that you have to go on. Right. Right. It's, exactly. it's about being mm -hmm. thinking outside of the box. So thank you for sharing mm -hmm. that. Um, where can people find you? Social media or website? How do they get yeah. hold of you? My website is uh, theblindcook.com and I am active on my social media. So uh, on Instagram and Facebook at my handle is at the blind cook and you can get in touch with me on my website as well or on my social media and ask me questions or um, whatever it may be if it's like cooking tips or finding out you know what next event I'll be at or whatnot so I'm definitely active online. Thank you for sharing that. And you can also find her incredible recipes uh, on a book she's authored, Recipes from My Home Kitchen, Asian and American Comfort Food, a book that's received a great, great acclaim. So uh, find some recipes in there. I'm planning to visit Houston soon, so hopefully I can drop by one of the restaurants. Yes, please, uh, Rasha. And, and check out some of your work. So thank you once again, Christina. It's been sure. such a pleasure having you and, and you. speaking with you today. And I, I truly am very inspired by your journey and your strength and your creativity. It's, it, it really amazes me. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rasha. It was my pleasure.
So you have all the handles and the website of where Christine can be found. And now for all my listeners or my viewers, uh, we'd also love to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions for future guests or any topics or questions you'd like to ask, do get in touch with us. And don't forget to subscribe to our program on your favorite podcast platform. You can follow us also on Facebook, on Twitter X, Instagram, and of course, our YouTube channel. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers the Asian Pacific American communities with a voice through media arts. If you'd like to support our program, please do visit us at AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I'm Rasha Goel, and don't forget to join me next week for another thought-provoking dialogue and conversation on Asian Pacific Voices Radio Show. Until then, take care.